Welcome to the podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. For more information, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com. First John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, and we're going to continue that reading through verse 14. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Almighty and everlasting God, I thank you that you speak to us, that you have revealed yourself to us in Christ Jesus, your Son. I pray that by the grace of your Holy Spirit, as we look into your word, that we would have an illuminated understanding, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, so that we would truly know Christ Jesus, and in knowing him, become more and more like him. It is in Jesus' mighty name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen, you can have your seat this morning. In the book of Acts, chapter 19, we get this glimpse of the absolutely powerful culture-changing force that was the early Christian movement. The Apostle Paul has just established the church in the ancient city of Ephesus. And as the gospel goes forth in Ephesus, The ethnic barrier that once separated Jew and Gentile, a barrier of hostility, is broken down in Christ Jesus. New converts turn away from their old sins and their old idols in such a way that even the economic fabric of the ancient city begins to shift and be reshaped. New converts become disciples. New disciples become leaders, and those leaders are then sent to plant new churches throughout the entire region of Asia Minor until all people of Asia Minor hear the word of the gospel, the living word of God. Even more, as Paul preaches and as he prays, people were healed of their diseases. They were delivered from spiritual oppression. 
In fact, his ministry was so spiritually charged and powerful and effective that people would even take garments that Paul had simply just touched and then carry them to those that were sick and those who were afflicted so that they would be miraculously made whole. Now, around the same time, in Ephesus, there's a group of seven guys, and they're known as the sons of Sceva. They also claim to be spiritually empowered leaders and healers, but unlike Paul, they are pretenders. They are charlatan soothsayers who would prey upon the desperate and the needy, claiming to have descended from an ancient family of the Jewish high priests. The sons of Sceva rely on theatricality and sleight of hand, and they use this act of sorts to profiteer from those who would hire their spiritual services. So one day, the sons of Sceva are hired to help a man who's apparently possessed by a demon. He's tormented by a demon. And these guys have heard about all the attention that this guy named Paul is getting. After all, he's preaching in the name of Jesus, and he's praying in the name of Jesus. And so they decide they need to up their ante, and they decide to incorporate part of Paul's act into their own act, so to speak. So they enter into the demonized man's home, and they begin to shout, I command you to come out in the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. But then something very unexpected happens. The demon talks. He speaks to them directly. He says, Jesus I know, and Paul I've heard about, but who are you guys? And that is the beginning of their very bad day. The demon immediately then attacks them. He actually leaps upon them, and he fights all seven sons of Sceva. Now, if you've ever seen a fight in real life, either professional or even spontaneous, you know that there are many cases where there is not a clear-cut winner of a given fight. In fact, in a professional fight, sometimes both parties are left standing, and it has to come down to a panel of judges to make a decision as to who won the fight. And even then, there are times where the panel disagrees with one another. And there's a split decision or a contested decision. That is not what happens with the seven sons of Sceva and the demonized man. Scripture tells us that despite this one to seven odds, the demon masters them and overpowers them until the sons of Sceva leave the man's house naked and wounded. Now, I'm just saying, typically if a person begins a fight with their clothes on, and then concludes the fight with their clothes gone, things have not gone according to plan. That's a bad day. That's a bad fight. You have lost the fight. And you see in this moment, the sons of Sceva know about Jesus. They know his name. They know the power associated with his name. But they do not truly know Jesus. And their failure to truly know Jesus is their undoing. However, word begins to travel around the city of Ephesus about this event, and more people become intrigued. They become amazed by the power that is connected to the name of Jesus. They recognize that even demons, spiritual beings, acknowledge the authority and the might of Jesus. And unlike these charlatans and pretenders who pretend to know Jesus, men like Paul, the other apostles and the other Christian leaders seem to truly know him and walk with him. And as a result, more people become followers of Jesus. Now, fast forward a few decades here, still in the same city of Ephesus. Most of the elderly apostles have died. Many of them, including the Apostle Paul, have even been martyred for their faith in Jesus. 
Nevertheless, the church that Paul plants still endures. Yet there is a new generation of pretenders and charlatans that has now risen up. They claim to possess this very secret and hidden knowledge of Jesus. But in reality, they are preaching a very different version of Jesus, one that is virtually unrecognizable to the testimony of the Gospels. And through their deception, they are seeking to actively divide the church and to confuse Christians. And it's into this exact situation that the Apostle John, the last of the original living disciples of Jesus, writes the letter of 1 John to the church. And he's saying, guys, these false teachers do not preach the real Jesus. Sure, they've heard about the name of Jesus, and certainly they know that the name of Jesus has power, but they do not truly know him. And this happens today as well. Our culture is still very much replete with pretenders and charlatans who are willing to use the name of Jesus to build their brand, to advance their politics, to increase their wealth, or to simply justify their own personal cause. Like the false teachers of the ancient world, we are tempted to take the name of the true God and instrumentalize it. We're tempted to put the name of Jesus on our own biases and our own desires. You see, all of this provokes a very real question. How do we truly know that we know the true Jesus? In a world of pretenders, how can we recognize whether or not we are true followers of Jesus? And in today's passage, the Apostle John will answer that question by showing us how we know that we know. And as we delve further into this text, we're going to discover three ways that we know that we truly know Jesus. Number one, we keep his commandments. Number two, we love one another. Number three, we rest in the simple truth of the gospel. It's point number one, we obey his commandments. Now, I'll admit, the topic of Christian obedience is a very tricky subject. It's actually very difficult to preach. After all, one of the most foundational truths of the Christian gospel is that we are saved by God's sheer grace, not by our own good works. We are saved by what God has done for us, not by what we can do for God. But with that said, there is a massive difference between saying that our obedience does not save us and saying that our obedience does not matter. Because our obedience most certainly matters. It matters a great deal. For we see even here that in keeping the commands of Christ and in the doing of this, we can know that we have truly come to know Christ Jesus. John tells us, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. In this passage, the word for keep is a very active word. It means to actively watch over, to guard, to hold, and preserve. John is saying that the people of God are called to guard the word of the Lord, to love and to cherish the commands of God and his word, to see them as finer than even fine gold and sweeter than honeycomb, to treat the word of God and the commands of the word of God as something that is immensely valuable and irreplaceable, as if it were a treasure. My sons and I recently watched one of the great classic films of my childhood, and that movie was The Sandlot. The movie's about just the childhood experience. It's about summertime and baseball. 
But you see, the central conflict involves a little boy named Smalls who makes the very ill-fated decision to steal his stepfather's favorite baseball and then use that baseball in a pickup game that he's going to play with the neighborhood kids. So during this game, the little boy is elated because he has just hit his very first ever home run. He can't believe that it happens, and so he begins to run and shout and round the bases. He's absolutely filled with joy, but once the ball soars over a fence and into the yard of a vicious junkyard dog, his joy becomes terror. He watches as this beastly dog steals and chews and slobbers all over his stepdad's ball, and his heart begins to fill with dread. He knows that this particular ball is very treasured by his stepfather, but he does not know why. And when his teammates ask why it's such a big deal, why they can't just go get another ball, why this one is so important, Smalls informs them, well, it's important to my stepdad because it's signed by some guy, some guy named Babe Ruth. Suddenly, everyone realizes that Smalls has zero idea who Babe Ruth is, even though earlier in the film, he actually pretended to know who the babe was. He has no idea that Babe Ruth is arguably the greatest, most legendary baseball player of all time. He has no idea, in the words of the film, that he is the Sultan of Swat, the Colossus of Cloud, the great Mambino. He has no idea that a Babe Ruth autograph ball was essentially priceless, unbelievably rare, and virtually irreplaceable. And because he did not know who Babe Ruth was, he was able to treat this ball with just absolute abandon, because if he did know who Babe Ruth was, he would not have taken such a precious treasure and thrown it around in a kid's game to be hit and slobbered on by a dog. Instead, he would have guarded it with his life. So too, if we truly understand who Christ is, we know what he has done for us. If we can grasp his goodness and his greatness and his grace, we would not treat his word with disdain or disrespect. We would not casually pick and choose which of his commands we would honor and obey and which of his commands that we would choose to minimize and ignore. No, to truly know Christ is to treasure Christ. And to treasure Christ is to treasure his word and the words of his commandments. But what I want you to see is that we don't obey God's commandments to earn God's love. In fact, it's the exact opposite. We obey God's commandments because God has loved us so extravagantly. Thus, to keep the commands of God, the God who saved us, is the natural response to his goodness. It's the necessary response to his lordship. It is the perfect response to his love. As John says, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Now, in this context, the word perfected does not mean that we are perfect and without error. Instead, it means that when we walk in righteousness in response to the gospel of grace, God's love is made complete. It's achieved its perfect goal. It has accomplished what it is intended to do. And what has God intended for his people? He intends to conform us the very image of his son, Jesus Christ. He is birthing within us a new life that flows from truly knowing Christ. Because there is this transforming capacity of truly knowing someone and walking with them and living your life with them. 
In fact, later this summer, my wife Kate and I will celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary. And we've known each other for so many years now. It seems like this unbroken time that we've been able to share with one another. And through that time, through living life with one another and sharing life together, I feel like she knows me better than anyone else. And I feel like I know her better than anyone else. When you truly know someone, you can begin to discern even the smallest subtleties in the way that they speak. You can know what their slightest mannerisms signal. You can know and even anticipate the responses that this person would have to certain situations. But even more than that, the longer that I've been married to Kate, I've noticed something else. We've begun to mirror one another. Oftentimes we'll even mimic certain things that only one another has said. We'll begin to imitate one another. So too, when you know Jesus, when you abide in Jesus, when you walk with Jesus, you will find that the Spirit of God is forming you to imitate the very ways of Jesus Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul will say, by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In fact, before the followers of Jesus were ever known by the title Christians, they had another name. And the book of Acts tells us what that name was. They were simply known as the way. They were known as those who seemed with their very lives and the way that they spoke to one another, the way they spoke to the outside world, they were those who embodied the very ways of Jesus. And I pray for our congregation that when the outside world would see our lives, when they would hear our words, when they see the, the way that we simply live, they would say, those are people who embody the very way of Jesus. That leads us to point number two. The next way that we know that we know Jesus is that we love one another. At the time 1 John was written, the false teachers had infiltrated the church and sought to deceive many early Christians. And they're doing this by teaching new ideas and hidden knowledge, something called gnosis. They proudly claim to know spiritual things, deep hidden secrets that no one has ever heard before, that no one has ever taught before. And so you get the idea that novelty, spiritual novelty is very much their gimmick. It's it's really much the, the foundation on which their business is built. But the message of the Apostle John is fundamentally different. He writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. John is very upfront that the message that he intends to impart is not radically original. Instead, he speaks of a deeply ancient commandment. And that commandment is love. Love is not just the greatest of the commandments of God. It is truly the umbrella category under which all other biblical commands reside. Once, when Jesus was asked by some of his adversaries to define the greatest commandment of the Old Testament law, Jesus responds very famously with the words that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Out of the totality of all of God's self-revelation, disclosure through the words of the Old Testament, Jesus is saying it comes down to how God has revealed himself in and through love and how we are called to love him. 
In the same way, the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And likewise, what you're going to see in this letter of 1 John is that the primacy of love will be a vital theme in John's thought. In fact, John is going to repetitively come back to this idea over and over again throughout this book, and we're going to talk about it several more times. But for now, what I want you to know is that Christianity's view of love is often radically different from the way that we use the word love in casual conversation, as well as different from the way that outside culture tends to understand and use the term love as well. Love is not a fleeting emotion that we cannot control. Love is not the uncritical and unconditional celebration of the thoughts, words, deeds, and desires of the people who are around us. Rather, love is to will and to actively seek the highest good of another. Love is the central commandment of the law of God, the fundamental truth at the foundation of the cosmos, the essential core of what it means to be fully human and to bear forth the image of God. Yet while love is a deeply ancient command, there is a sense in which it seems profoundly new. It seems profoundly revolutionary and otherworldly because even though God is at the foundation of God's good creation or love is at the foundation of God's good creation, our world has been fractured by the powers of sin and death. Endless war, famine, abuse, starvation, poverty, human tracking, violence. These were never intended to be part of God's creation. But because of sin, such darkness has become a normative and even inescapable part of our lived experience in reality. But now, since Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, has come to live and dwell among us, since he has come to live and die and rise again, since he has sent his Spirit into our hearts to empower us and to live within us and dwell within us, his love has become a light that shines in the midst of darkness. This is why John writes, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The love that Christ has embodied to us, the love that he shines through us, is intended to be a beacon of hope that testifies to a day when Christ returns and makes all things new. Whenever there is a new friend that comes to visit Amarillo for the first time, or a new guest that maybe is ministering at our church, I tend to want to host these people, and I tend to want to avoid all the touristy sideshow attractions of Amarillo, Texas. I tend to want to avoid the Cadillac Ranch, and I want to avoid the big Texan. And if I have only one shot, one thing that I can show them of this area, it is always the Paladura Canyon. I want to take them there. I want them to be able to to see it and take it in. And one of my very, very favorite things, if I have the chance and the opportunity, is to take them to the canyon just before dawn. You see, driving towards the canyon, the West Texas Panhandle is not a very impressive place at first glance. The wilderness plains appear dry and dreary, especially in the early morning darkness. But then, seemingly out of nowhere, 
the Powder Canyon opens up into this new universe. When the sun begins to rise over the eastern ridge, all the monotony of darkness and flatness of the surrounding world is suddenly transformed into an eruption of color and light that signals the arrival of a new day. It's in those moments you can almost hear the voice of the heavens declaring the glory of God. And so too, the simple, normal Christian life does not seem very impressive at first glance. But when we truly forgive as Christ has forgiven us, when we welcome the lonely as Christ has welcomed us, when we serve with his humility and his kindness, when we speak with his grace and his truth, when we suffer with the hope of his resurrection, when we love as he has loved us, our lives are like the first rays of dawn that shine in the darkness and testify to a day when a new kingdom is coming in Christ Jesus. But in the same way, when we forsake the way of love, when we choose the way of selfishness and pettiness and hate, we show that we have yet to truly, truly know Christ. And we're still living in the blindness of the present age. As the Apostle Paul says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. It does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We do live in a culture, and we live in this inflection moment in history where it seems there's so much blindness that is a result of hatred. We're blinded by fear and outrage, endless cynicism and constant criticism. And it's easy, it's tempting to get caught up in the flow and the frenzy of this world, but such a way is a life of darkness and spiritual blindness. And the people of God are called to be distinct and different from the world that is passing away. We are called to be a people defined by love. Our third and final point, final way that we know that we know him is that we rest in the simple truth of the gospel. If you're like me, passages like 1 John, and there's several passages like this in this New Testament letter, they can almost create a sense of doubt and worry about your salvation. It's easy to look at a text like this and only see the ways that we have failed to live as we ought to live and to love as we ought to love. It can at times seem that we're still missing out on some special secret to the Christian life that has up until this point somehow eluded us. But the greatest problem is not in what we have failed to learn. Our problem is what we have failed to remember. We are victims of our own spiritual amnesia. And the antidote to this forgetfulness lies not within secret knowledge or a radical new teaching that we've never heard of. Instead, it's to be reminded over and over and over again of the simple truth of who Christ is, what Christ has done for us, how Christ has redeemed us, and who we are in Christ. See, it's not enough to simply know the gospel. It's not even enough to simply give mental assent to the gospel. Our truest freedom, our truest liberty is known when we teach our hearts to rest in the gospel. That is why the Apostle John will now explicitly state the very truths that we are so prone to forget. I'm writing to you, little children, 
because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. People of God, you no longer need to carry the crushing weight of self-condemnation for your failures and for your shame, for you have been forgiven in Christ's very name. He's taken every bit of penalty for your sin upon the cross, and he has given you the gift of his righteousness. You no longer need to crave significance or to live for the approval of others, for you have known and you have been known by the very God who created the cosmos. The author of all creation knows your name. You no longer need to white-knuckle your way through life, seeking in vain to control the uncontrollable, running and working with weariness. For in Christ, you are strong, and you have overcome the evil one. The very power of his resurrection lives within you. You no longer need to be enslaved to the power of sin because God is your Father. He alone is good. He alone will satisfy you. He alone is enough. These are not just truths of the gospel. They are truths that we need to be reminded of over and over and over again. These are the truths that we need to preach to our own souls when we feel burdened with fear and sorrow and agony and doubt and rage. We must teach our hearts to rest in these truths. And by the way, we also need to teach one another to rest in these truths as well. One of the gifts of Christian community is to come together in moments just like this or moments in fellowship and remind one another what is true because of Jesus Christ. Because it's easy to forget. It's easy for that truth to fall out of our head because the truth of the gospel is so big that we cannot grasp it in a simple glimpse. Instead, we must patiently wait before it. We must teach our hearts to rest in it. And like a long exposure lens before a clear night sky, so too our hearts will find that the things of this world will indeed grow strangely dim in light of Christ's glory and grace. So, Redeemer Christian Church, may we be those who treasure the commandments of the God who has saved us. May we love one another well. And in so doing, may we shine the light of the kingdom that is to come. May we rest in the simple truth of the gospel. And may we know that we have known Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that our sins are forgiven in you. That because of you and your power, we've overcome the evil one. That because you have revealed yourself to us as our Heavenly Father, We are set free of so much, and we are given such a profound hope. Lord, I pray that your spirit would now press these truths deep within our hearts, that we would know Christ, and in knowing Christ, we would be made more like him, that we would live as he lives, and that we would love as he loves. So, Lord, I pray for those that are in this room today hurting and burdened with pain with tragedy, 
Today, would you breathe your light of hope within them? For those of us that have perhaps been poisoned by our own unforgiveness, Lord, I pray that you would set us free. For those that have been burdened by their own shame, God, I pray that you would give us grace and give us rest in our souls. For you are the one who is gentle and lowly, and you are the one who takes our burdens. It's in Christ's holy name that I pray these things. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Redeemer Christian Church. Our mission is to declare the gospel with our words and display the gospel with our lives to our neighbors and to the nations. And your financial support makes resources like this possible. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider supporting us and our mission at RedeemerChristianChurch.com backslash give. And thank you for listening.